This week on The First Three, let's talk about Oshi no Ko, a show that has a lot to say about the idol industry as well as the entertainment industry at large. Its extra-long first episode sent shockwaves through the anime world, and I certainly had more than a few friends tell me that I had to watch this show. Well, let's take a look at this supersized first episode of Oshinoko, as well as a look at the idol industry in general. See if there's any merit to all the barbs that are being thrown out from uh, Oshinoko's perspective. So let's get into it. But first, a little jam from Snail's House. So Oshinoko comes to us from studio Doga Kobo, uh, known for Gekkan Shoujo Nozaki-kun, Gabriel Dropout, and New Game, uh, to name a few. Um, and they also employ background work from legendary background studio, Studio Easter. And I must say that finding out the studio behind Oshinoko was a bit of a surprise. Uh, not that Dogakobo are any slouches, but their work tends to be, you know, these kind of like safer, uh, slice of life kind of shows. And uh, with Oshinoko, the production is so lavish and so over the top uh, that it doesn't really fit with their general mold. But um, uh, yeah, they kind of they kind of pull it off, which is interesting. In the director's chair for this one is Hiramaki Daisuke who uh, was at the helm for Koisuru Asteroid and Watashini Tenshi ga Mayorita. Uh, two, you know, serviceable shows. Nothing that really stand out, but, uh, you know, very nice, cute little shows. Um, and the uh, scripts for Oshinoko are being handled by Tanaka Jin, who is responsible for script composition in Yuru Camp, as well as Love Live. So, um, some cozy vibes and also some experience with idol-related material. So I think that's one of the key links here is to have uh, Tanaka on the scripts there. Someone who's got experience writing for idol material, um, kind of knows kind of what the tropes might be and how to, you know, best uh, bring out the best in uh, those tropes. And uh, so I think that's a key person uh, on this staff, I think, here. And finally, Oshinoko is based on the manga by Akasaka Aka, who is most famous for Kaguya-sama Love is War, uh, a hugely popular love comedy show. Um, I gotta say, like, I'm a fan of Kaguya-sama, but like, it wasn't as amazing as a lot of other people I know uh, think that it is. Um, it just didn't quite hit for me, but it's, you know, it's a pretty solid, you know, love comedy for what it is. Um, but, uh, I think part of the reason that Oshinoko also has generated a lot of hype is because it comes from Akasaka Aka, um, and there are a lot of fans of Kaguya-sama, so having that connection definitely built some of the, uh, hype for Oshinoko, most certainly. So... Oshinoko is kind of a hard uh, series to uh, describe right off the bat because it really is a, a tale of two halves here. This first episode that we get, the whole 80, 90 minutes of it, 
um, focuses on the kind of life of upcoming idol Hoshino Ai and uh, kind of some of the things that she's dealing with as part of her little idol group. Um, the uh, events of the show afterwards are kind of a focus on her children's lives and uh, so in that the tone of that is is, is similar but but different from this first episode so when we're talking about the show in in general it is kind of like this weird split where there's, there's this first episode that covers this kind of like almost like a prologue and then we end up in a different kind of story in the in the second half of the show uh, basically starting with episode two in fact um so tricky to kind of describe so what i'll try and do is because we're just going to try and talk about episode one here with you know the kind of intro to the show uh i'll focus on the plot uh that we get in that first episode only so the show starts off by introducing us to hoshino ai who is the center member so the kind of like the main the leader i guess in a way of uh the idol group b komachi and uh we get a little bit of an explanation as to kind of where she came from her her uh how the group has fared success wise over the last little while all thanks to uh, uh, her biggest fan or one of her biggest fans i suppose um uh, a doctor who lives kind of out in the boonies uh amemia goro and uh Goro here, uh, he's like an obsessive kind of idol otaku guy here. He knows kind of everything about the Bikomachi group. He's got all the DVDs. Just kind of your typical obsessive fan. Now, one of Goro's patients uh, is this uh, appears to be terminally ill child, Sarina Chen, and uh, she is also a fan of Bikomachi and uh, I in particular and uh, so she and Goro have a little chat about uh, what it would be like to be uh, born as a child of a celebrity and this is kind of like a weird conversation that might be a little bit of foreshadowing and unfortunately Serena is not long for this world and uh, passes away and uh, then we kind of you know we jump ahead to present day again and uh, we're kind of hashing out why uh, Goro is so obsessed with uh, Bikomachi and Hoshino Ai and it probably stems a little bit from losing Serena uh, at, a, at a young age there and uh, wanting to you know uh, continue to be a fan of Bikomachi in Serena's honor I guess uh, is his you know, rationale at least. So we find out that uh, Goro is an OBGYN, and uh, his next patient just happens to be someone who's wearing a very conspicuous uh, disguise um, with the last name of Hoshino. Uh, it doesn't quite trigger right away, but obviously uh, it is the idol Hoshino Ai who is here in this small town trying to avoid the press because uh, she is pregnant which is a no-no uh, in the idol world for sure so i guess with this plot point it's worth pointing out at this time that in idol culture uh, it's very important to maintain the illusion at the very least that uh, the idol themselves are pure they are 
you know, unattached to any man. Uh, they're attainable in some kind of way. It's a really strange uh, valuing of like purity in the like kind of young maiden uh, that is something that's quite, I don't know, perverse about idol culture. And there's plenty of writing about the kind of commodification and consumption of innocence that comes with the territory. And the very specific way in which femininity is constructed and commodified in the idol industry. And how this uh, intense focus on the innocence and purity uh, could lead to uh, trauma uh, experienced by women and... Uh, the you know, the kind of sacrificing of female agency uh, at play here. So yeah, if uh, word gets out that uh, Hoshino Ai is uh, pregnant, uh, it would be terrible for the image of not only her, but of the Bikomachi group, which is why Hoshino Ai is here in this kind of, you know, rural uh, little town uh, to kind of have her pregnancy dealt with. Um, out of the limelight, away from prying eyes, and uh, she's able to kind of remain somewhat anonymous, you know, as she kind of moves about the little town. And it's during this time that she gets a little chance to talk to Goro uh, a little bit more, seeing as he's going to be uh, her doctor for the next little while as she kind of hides away in this little mountain town here. And so she talks to Goro about uh, kind of like what it's like to be an idol, and uh, that it's all about spinning lies that uh, your fans are going to believe. And uh, she kind of makes the point that uh, lies might in fact be the truest form of love, which is a very strange uh, statement to make, but um, she seems to believe it. And um, I think a lot of idol fans want to believe those lies. And I think that's kind of one of the things that drives the industry. This show definitely tries to hammer that point home, but I think it is one that actually has some merit to it. Um, you you want to just believe in this fantasy that this you know this girl or this group of girls, whoever this whoever your favorite idol or idols are, um, that in fact they're they're singing, they're performing, they're pouring their hearts out for you the the one and only true fan of this uh, of this group or uh, of this particular idol it's all built on this big like delusion that everyone just kind of like buys into which is strange so the story doesn't really waste too much time uh we kind of progress through eyes pregnancy uh there's little murmurings that she might be in town but uh, nothing has actually leaked to the point where uh like media coverage has descended upon the town or anything like this um but uh, as we approach the delivery date um goro is uh, more than happy to to you know be available at any time to uh, to deliver the uh the, the twins that uh i is carrying but uh, as he steps out for a smoke break or just to get a little bit of fresh air, uh, he's confronted by someone who seems a little bit odd, a little bit uh, strange. He uh, appears to be a stalker of some sort and uh, wanting to protect Ai, Goro uh, chases the uh, stalker 
and uh, ends up on the wrong end of being attacked by the stalker. And uh, very suddenly, early on in this uh, episode here, uh, Goro, Goro dies. He's done for. So we get the title card finally 15 minutes in as uh, I gives birth to her two twins, Aquamarine and Ruby, some very unique destined for celebrity life uh, kind of names. And uh, it's here that all the talk previously that, you know, not only was it uh, Serena who was talking about wanting to be reborn, the uh, Goro talking about it as well and kind of being less than impressed with the idea. There was also a random uh, patient at the hospital or someone who was waiting at the hospital who was also talking about being reborn. So all of this like very blatant foreshadowing of this uh, coming event here uh, obviously comes to fruition in the fact that uh, Goro has been uh, reborn as Aquamarine, one of the two twins. So he gets to kind of live out this fantasy of uh, being uh, I's child. So the kids are healthy and I is looking to make her return to be Komachi uh, with a appearance on a television show and then a little bit of a live performance uh, recorded at a studio somewhere here. And this is where we get kind of a, some of the digs at the idol industry, the entertainment industry here, uh, where Bikomachi is all set to perform. They're looking all, you know, cute in all of their outfits and ready to roll on the stage here. And literally everyone who is part of the production team, uh, you know, cameramen, uh, some of the producers and agents that are just kind of lingering around the, the set here, everyone is shit-talking them. This group has had, like, no traction in the last little while. Are any of these girls even, you know, memorable faces in any kind of way? They kind of uh, point out that I is kind of the, the superstar of the group. Um, there's a lot of comments about physical appearance, and so there's this definite, like, negative attitude kind of permeating all of this. Uh, so the, the facade that we see on TV, I guess, being that the idols are and happy and everyone loves them and then behind the scenes in fact nobody likes them in any way at all which is disheartening uh, to say the least and again it all comes back to lies everyone is you know just kind of faking it till they make it there's talk about how producers are just looking at the numbers and as long as they're okay they don't care what kind of drivel they're putting out Meanwhile, we flash back to Ai's apartment, and Aqua is up watching the broadcast, uh, just ecstatic to be in uh, his current position. Uh, and uh, it's then that uh, Ruby, the other twin, wakes up from a nap and uh, is distraught to be missing Mama's performance. And it's here that we get an introduction to Ruby, who is equally uh, obsessed with Ai and uh, so is, is definitely relishing in the uh, position that they find themselves in, also reborn. And uh, I don't think it's any secret that this is probably Serena. Um, I would be shocked to find out that uh, this is not the case. But um, Ruby seems to be a bit more unhinged in her fan support of I, uh, going so far as to somehow post on social media using 
someone's phone. So while I is on her little comeback tour, um, she has her manager's wife, Miyako, uh, take care of the kids as to not arouse any suspicions. But Miyako is not too happy about this new role that she's been uh, given. And uh, so she uh, kind of conjures up this uh, harebrained scheme to uh, maybe expose I sell some photos to a, a tabloid or something and uh, you know live off of that uh, cash infusion that she would get from that um, and it's here that the uh, two uh, kids intervene uh, they had been able to talk to each other and that kind of seemed like oh it's just two babies that are uh, able to communicate for the sake of plot convenience this is fine uh, but it turns out that uh, uh, the kids can actually also speak with the adults so Aqua puts on this very old-world, formal kind of speech and uh, declares himself a divine messenger uh, and that uh, Miyako should do as he says. Miyako is obviously a little bit shook by all this, doesn't quite believe it, starts to kind of like ramble on and assumes that it's some kind of a hidden camera prank show that she's been set up on. Uh, and then... Uh, but, uh, of course, this is not the case, and, uh, in fact, Ruby also joins in and, uh, gives it her best shot with the kind of divine messenger shtick. Setting up the terms that if Miyako, uh, dotes on the kids and doesn't spoil the secret, uh, that, uh, she will avoid being punished and, uh, will, in fact, uh, maybe be rewarded with a, a second marriage to an actor husband. And uh, she uh, kind of eats up this story and uh, agrees to uh, kind of help the kids out in keeping uh, Ai's secret under wraps. So Ai kind of laments that she's not making enough money to support her two kids and kind of the future that she wants for them. And uh, Miyako kind of gives her the reality check that uh, when you're in a group like Bikomachi, you have to split all of your fees, all of the appearance fees that you make um, between all group members. Then there's the agency fees, blah, 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 blah. It kind of breaks down for us here what, what, what the takeaway is when, even if you're in an idol group that's fairly successful, your actual uh, take-home pay, as it were, isn't really uh, all that much. And uh, if you kind of go off on your own to be a solo performer, you're competing against a lot of other established solo performers and those kind of gigs that you might be getting are uh, fiercely competitive and uh, so even when you try and break away as the most successful member of your group uh, there's no guarantee that you can then hack it as a as a solo artist and as such uh, the reality is that many idols just get chewed up and spat out and end up just working regular jobs uh, after their careers kind of come to an unceremonious uh, end. But of course, this isn't what happens to Ai. She uh, continues to uh, kind of rise through the, the ranks and uh, lands a couple of uh, smaller gigs here and there. And so we get this kind of like uh, skip forward uh, as the, the two kids grow a little bit older and uh, as I starts to pick up uh, steam with her career and for one of these gigs uh, Miyako brings the two kids along kind of passing them off as uh, her own children 
And this is where uh, Aqua has a chance encounter with the director of this uh, high school drama that uh, I is going to be performing in. Uh, and uh, the director has a lot of information to pass off to Aqua. He breaks down what kind of performers uh, make up a cast of a, of a given project. So you've got your main star, who is kind of like the name recognition uh, attraction to uh, a show or a film. And, uh, and then you've got someone who is kind of the, the real talent uh, behind uh, the project. So an, an actor or actress who uh, has the real chops to kind of bring a certain level of credibility to the project. And the third category is newcomers trying to make their mark. Uh, so as long as they, you know, don't flub up, if they uh, test well enough with audiences, then they've proven their worth and they've, uh, you know, done all that's required of them. And so hopefully that kind of leads to more gigs. And th that's kind of the role that I is in in this situation. So again, we've gone through uh, kind of what makes the idol industry hum and now we're getting this kind of like big uh, monologue about uh, how the acting world works. And so it feels like there's like a lot of like baggage and kind of hangups going on here with like how critical elements of this show is with um, aspects of the entertainment industry at large. And I will say that it comes across as a little heavy handed um, I'm kind of fine with being very critical of these industries because they do seem like they're pretty horrible ones to be a part of, but, um, I don't, just the, the way that the dialogue has flowed so far in this massive first episode, um, like it just has these little moments where here's, here's the stump speech kind of thing, and then we move on to some more kind of like lighthearted stuff, and then it's like, okay, here's the other issue that I have with the industry, and it's just, it's not woven in quite elegantly enough but i mean i appreciate that someone at least is calling out the bs then when eyes part gets uh, scaled back when the uh, tv drama actually airs uh aqua you know somehow he's a very advanced little toddler uh he uh calls the director as the director has given him his uh, contact information and uh he kind of asks what the deal is with that, and then we get another kind of long bit of exposition about uh, how it's all kind of a, a hierarchy uh, where the kind of top performer can kind of have a, a say in how they are portrayed uh, as compared to everyone else on the cast. And when uh, the top performer in this drama uh, saw that I was just too cute or too pretty uh, and taking up all the uh, kind of screen space... Um, they decided to cut her part a little bit uh, because uh, that was not working in, in accordance with the strategy of the kind of the lead actress in this uh, drama that we've got here. So again, another like little inside look at some politics uh, uh, of how uh, the acting world works, um, probably based on, you know, actual things that do occur in the industry. So I don't doubt that uh, this is something that actually does happen. Um, and this, I don't know, this is the second little kind of bit of exposition in a row where we get this long kind of diatribe about, uh, what it's like to be in this industry. Um, this one sounded a little bit more natural, a bit more of a kind of a normal conversation that you would probably have. Um, the first time that Aqua speaks with the director, 
I was kind of like, why is the director just going off like this? Um, but this one, this follow-up does seem a little bit better. And we get a little scene where Aqua has taken on an acting gig. Uh, he's been keeping in touch with uh, the director of uh, I's uh, high school TV drama project. And uh, he's got this uh, little bit part in a movie that uh, he thinks Aqua would do really well in. And uh, yeah, then we get to meet uh, another character, a, a little precocious uh, child actor, Arima Kana. And she's got this spoiled diva attitude where she's been told all her life that she's cute and precious and she can, you know, cry at the uh, drop of a hat and, uh, you know, just what an amazing young talent she is. And so uh, uh, she's pretty full of herself. Um, but uh, Aqua still has the mental faculties of Goro kind of in him. And as such, uh, he's able to kind of really make sense of uh, what the acting scene is is asking of him and delivers a, a really great performance uh, and uh, kind of shows up Kana and this really sets her off she doesn't know why this kid who showed up out of nowhere is all of a sudden the the, the best uh, kid star on the set so things kind of putter on for a little bit uh, the Aqua and uh, Ruby uh, go to preschool uh, no one is aware that they are Ai's children still, so that's been kept under wraps successfully. Um, Ai's career is still moving forward pretty well, and uh, she's practicing for an upcoming concert and uh, has a bit of a bonding moment with Ruby, so we get a little bit of Ruby focus, um, and we learn the surprise, not surprise, that in fact she was, uh, she's reincarnated from, uh, Serena, the sick kid from, uh, earlier that we, that, uh, Goro, uh, was caring for all those years ago. Uh, so, you know, not a real shocker there. Uh, they kind of, I think they pretty much telegraphed it pretty early on, so, uh, no spoilers there. Things are going so well that, uh, Bikomachi is going to be performing uh, at a, I assume, Tokyo Dome, uh, but there's a little bit of an explanation as to why making it to dome status is uh, kind of a big deal. So everyone's getting fairly excited about this uh, dome concert that is coming up, and then we get a little flashback to when I kind of first started out and uh, kind of reflecting on her whole journey so far. Um, we get a nice appearance from the uh, Starbucks in the uh, Shibuya Scramble, which is probably one of the most famous stupid Starbucks locations ever. Uh, it shows up in a lot of anime. Any ones that are set in like Tokyo and has people visit Shibuya, you just see it there. So it's it's always in frame. And um, I've been there. It's really cramped and uh, it's a little bit outdated at this point. It's not really a great Starbucks to visit, and it's always super busy, so it really sucks to go to that Starbucks. There's plenty of decent coffee shops that are in the area that are uh, better and uh, less occupied. Everything has been going quite well. Uh, a little too well, perhaps. Like, just the way that the music comes in, it's all this, like, soft piano stuff. We've got a lot of scenes with vignetting, which kind of makes them look dreamy. Um, and, uh, so this is about, like, the hour mark of the episode, so we, we, we're getting close to the, the end here, and this is kind of where, in these few minutes here, it's starting to give off vibes that something, something not good is coming. 
So this big twist happens, and uh, then there's the kind of immediate fallout from said twist, and it's here in just the last few minutes of the episode where we really get to see where the series is going to go from here. Uh, we get a time skip uh, to Aqua and Ruby as teenagers getting ready to start high school, and uh, there's like a mystery uh, afoot here. So uh, that's why this episode needed to be as long as it is uh, to get through all of these elements uh, and, and keep viewers uh, wanting more. If uh, we were presented with like a first three episode approach to this, we would only be getting to maybe just the big twist after uh, three episodes worth of content. And for my money, like if I'm watching just the first half of this show as separate episodes, I might tune out. Um, the way that it takes its time with the prologue is you know, like, nice, that the pacing is good, but, um, the show doesn't really give you too much in the way of anything else, um, so it, uh, really makes a lot of sense why they decided to go with this kind of supersized episode approach, and this one is big. Usually, you know, like, a double size episode is not out of the realm of possibility. Demon Slayer does it quite a bit, um, but, uh, to have an, basically a movie-length first episode is quite something. Um, I feel like there's another show coming out in either the fall or the winter of 2024. Raren, I think, is the name. And uh, it is also starting with a giant first episode. Um, must be a lot of stuff to cover in that first episode to really hook people in. And I'm hearing good things about it already, so that's kind of exciting. But uh, here with Oshinoko... Um, they had to give us all of these 80 minutes or so uh, to give us that hook um, because the show does like shift quite a bit uh, from this prologue se uh, segment. And uh, if I'm being perfectly honest, what I saw after this first episode was somewhat less uh, appealing than I thought it was going to be. Um, they kind of set the stage for this really kind of like dark, could be very edgy uh, mystery uh, to take hold and uh, really start to dig into uh, some more uh, seedier elements of the entertainment world. And I think that they do in some respects, and they've actually caught a bit of flack for uh, kind of uh, Pulling from the headlines a little bit too liberally, perhaps, in the case of uh, the wrestler Kimura Hana, who uh, took her own life as a result of cyberbullying, and that is a plot point that comes up in a later episode. Um, so it still kind of gets in its, like, digs at the industry, um, but uh, this first episode kind of, like, dazzles you with all kinds of... Uh, uh, you know, nice uh, idol sequences, you know, the, the Bikomachi group performs a couple of times, and uh, all of that looks really good. The character designs are really sharp. The characters do look good all the way through in later episodes as well, um, but uh, 
they, they went really big in this first episode. They really were, were splashing uh, the cash around. And um, then it just kind of like, it slipped into this like high school uh, kind of slight inklings of, of mystery going on. But uh, um, I don't know, there wasn't a lot that really grabbed me after this first episode. It's not to say that it was, you know, bad or anything, but the way that people talk about this show is crazy to me. I think it's like good, but I, even in just this season, I think I've watched two or three, four shows even that are like, you know, head and shoulders above this one. Um, but uh, I don't know. People really bought into this first episode, and this first episode really does uh, pull a lot of people in. So I can see why it was so successful. So if we pull away from Oshinoko's look at the idol industry to uh, some work that is more focused on the idol industry in the real world, um, there is a pretty interesting little documentary that came out in 2017 called Tokyo Idols that follows kind of this up-and-coming uh, idol, uh, a 19-year-old named Ryo, and uh, she's just starting to make headway in the Tokyo scene and uh, she's got a group of fans who are known as the Rio brothers uh, who attend all of her shows they're her biggest fans biggest supporters and they're they're gonna put her over the top and she's gonna finally make it that's what they all believe they believe that what they're doing as fans is kind of lifting her up and that she's amazing and uh, so it really this documentary does a really good job of kind of showing you what Oshinoko is uh, critiquing and um, you know by and large you know Oshinoko does a decent job of kind of getting at what uh, makes idol culture kind of so gross or fake or um, just hollow but what you uh, do see in this documentary Tokyo Idols uh, is that um the fans that follow these idols, you know, like, they are, like, sad sack loser kind of guys, but, like, what it says about, um, just the state of, uh, men's relationships in Japan, I think, is, is quite dire. Um, you know, that these guys, you know, they work dead-end jobs, they're, you know, underemployed for their skills or something, they just feel like they've got nothing uh, to, to, you know, strive for. They're, you know, uh, mostly unmarried. Um, I don't think there'd be a, a wife who would be, like, really cool about her husband heading off and, you know, ogling uh, this 19-year-old idol. Um, and uh, so what, what you see is that these guys are kind of sad sacks, but they, they do come together and they find this little, like, you know, friendship group, really, uh, as kind of being fans of Rio together. Um, so there's that element that makes this whole thing seem a bit more positive, but then we also get a few cases in, in the documentary where um, younger idol groups with members, like, as young as 10, who are the kind of focus of the adoration of these you know 30 and 40 year old guys and that comes off as horrific 
um, these guys are at, they're attending like handshake events for these like fifth graders and uh, you know snapping photos it just looks like a weird like pedo convention or something like there is something that is seriously wrong about it um, it it um, it kind of shows a real downside of this industry in the way that if you know these young girls just don't seem to have any kind of agency they you know yes they're they've I suppose chosen to be an idol but you know they're not really I want to sing and I want to dance like I'm 10 years old okay we're gonna put you on stage and we're gonna have all these old men like just horn dog over you and that's really sad <laughs> There are more candid interviews of idols in the documentary who realize what they're doing and, um, you know, know that it's just another gig and uh, are kind of aware of the boundaries that they want to set and uh, that they are kind of as, you know, much as uh, I does in Oshinoko, that she's just, you know, putting on a smile and these guys all like to be lied to, that uh, this uh, perfect young girl uh, really does love them and uh, so you know there are cases where it's it, it there you could make an argument I suppose for a bit of empowerment but I feel like the industry as a whole is still pretty regressive and um, ultimately uh, sexist and uh, not not great so Oshinoko has firmly planted its flag on the matter here uh, that idol culture is not healthy and uh, something about it needs to change. Um, but like, what exactly do you do with idol culture? Um, because it seems that the problems run a lot deeper, you know, that uh, there's something that is, you know, deeply sad <laughs> about being a guy in Japan these days and that there is not enough support in Japanese culture to uh, kind of direct male energy elsewhere and so they fantasize about this perfect girl these these pure uh, teenaged idols who will either you know one day marry them or at the very least uh, uh you know show them love even if that love is just a lie we're fully into a kind of postmodern kind of affective e economy where the even the image of some of a girl of a woman who is who is pure and uh, is enough that that is what is being you know paid for here it's that image that is is so important you know when we when we're watching oshinoko we see that i is you know making making sure to take notes about how her smile looks about how her eyes look she needs to present this image of the perfect idol in order for her fans to you know continue to support them you know she has to be not even human she needs to be this 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 otherworldly kind of being and uh so it's all this fabrication and uh that's kind of the way that it's broken down and and that's all that really matters it doesn't really matter what you know hoshino i actually is like all that matters is what the image of i as the center member of 
be Komachi and that that persona uh, comes through in uh, uh, live performances, in handshake events, in you know the photos that they release for sale as a group. Um, that image of what she is is the most important thing and uh, so that's that's definitely what's being critiqued here um but uh, and, and it is interesting that the focus is kind of on i and the way that an idol kind of lies to you as opposed to like the fans also being a little bit out of touch with reality you know it is a product of the society itself that has led them to kind of be this way but um there is less emphasis on that element i think at least from what i have seen and um although there is the whole case of the stalker the stalker is a, is a very real problem that um a number of idols have faced over the years in real life um there have been cases where idols have been stalked uh and uh stabbed sexually assaulted um so it's it's not a good thing so um there is that definite element of it that, the, that these girls aren't um, are at risk, perhaps, and that um, that the there's been a lot of uh, talk about how the government doesn't do enough to try and protect women, which that could be um, somewhere where real change could uh, have a huge impact because um, you know just little incidents of you know sexual assault or sexual harassment in workplaces on trains and things like that are still prominent in japan like it's kind of that everyday kind of like creep vibe that a lot of girls have to deal with and um so if you know through something like critiquing the idol culture you end up with laws in place that will help protect women as victims of this kind of behavior um that would be a huge net positive. I don't think that Oshinoko's got the chops to really do that, but I don't know, it's better than just kind of going along with the idol industry and saying everything's peachy keen, which it really isn't. Uh, so yeah, that uh, I think that's going to about wrap it up for uh, a little look at Oshinoko here. Um, I guess we'll kind of get back to the idea that um, it was just a very interesting case uh, if we're trying to follow this first three rule when, you know, kind of critiquing a show, because if we didn't get to the big twist until the very end of episode three, it would probably, you know, like still work as a kind of a hook to, to keep you interested. Um, because if it ends on the big twist, then of course you're going to tune into the next episode to see what the deal is, what the aftermath of it is. Um, but you might not make it that far if, you know, if you only are watching those first two episodes, if, you, if we broke down this first giant episode into three and a half episodes of content, those first two, like, I don't know, kind of run of the mill. Uh, it wasn't anything too special. You know, lots of pointed critique at the idol industry and the entertainment industry uh, fits into those two, first two episodes or what would be those first two episodes. Um... But like, what's the uh, what's the hook? What what's keeping me in on this? Like, uh, you're not really too sure, and so it was a wise decision by the production company to 
uh, kind of package this as one giant episode. Um, it uh, created a lot of buzz, even though the show was airing on High Dive as opposed to Crunchyroll or Netflix. Um, so it did miss out on a bit of an audience there. Uh, but I think, you know, word got out, and if people weren't subscribed to High Dive, which is not a huge subscriber base for that uh, streaming platform quite yet, um, I'm sure a lot of people just pirated it or found it elsewhere through other means, um, because the buzz was very real and everyone was kind of talking about that first episode. I did notice that, like, all of that chatter did uh, start to dissipate as the series went on, uh, which I think kind of speaks to that back half not being quite as strong as this first episode. Um, kind of settled into a bit of a rhythm and got a little bit tropey at times. Uh, but uh, uh, no, uh, from the first episode, worth watching. Very interesting, uh, you know, 80 minutes of, uh, of, of a show setting itself up pretty well, looking very sharp and... Um, delivering a pretty interesting twist at the end uh so you know worth checking out rest of the series i don't know maybe not uh but that's it for this week's episode uh, just the one show uh but uh we'll be back next week with uh more and uh we'll uh, start to gear up for the uh, summer season which has a couple of shows on the docket that uh we'll hopefully get to here um so yeah, uh, thanks of course for tuning in, and uh, be sure to check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash thefirstthree, um, and yeah, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one.